Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. So I'm going to ask you a question uh, to begin our sermon tonight. This morning, for those of you at home, what is your earliest Christmas memory? So you got to think way back. What's your earliest memory? Or, if not your earliest, close to your earliest, right? What do you remember as a child about Christmas? Good memories, bad memories. And then here's a follow-up question. How have those memories shifted and changed over the years? I mean, I, I remember as a kid thinking the Christmas tree was huge. I mean, I did, because, you know, you're a lot smaller and, and as I got a little older, I realized, well, the tree's not really that big. Uh, and then as a 41-year-old, we have multiple trees in our house, so it doesn't matter how big they are, there's just all kind of ornaments to decorate and, and put together. But our perspectives change over the years, don't they? I mean, things we remember as a child make more sense now. Maybe you, you grew up in Christmas like my dad. My dad told me that uh, when he grew up, Christmas was an apple and an orange and a banana. And if they were really blessed, there were a few nuts thrown in too. And you know, nowadays, if it's not a lot of toys, then I'm not sure that kids think they've had a successful or a good Christmas. Perspective changes. And of course, my dad told me that part of the reason for that was that they grew up quite financially poor. That's the best they could do. They enjoyed it. They enjoyed what they had. It was different. Perspectives change. And we know that intuitively, right? That our perspective kind of shapes how we see a particular item or issue going on in the world. Well, that's the same, the same is true with the pages of Scripture. In, in the Bible, in the New Testament in particular, we have four gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each of those gospel accounts has a unique perspective that the gospel writer looks at in viewing Jesus and his story. And so, in preparation for this sermon series, I thought what I would do is preach about four sermons. We'll preach an extra one or two as we get into Christmas Eve, something a little different, and as we get into the new year. But four specific sermons on the gospel from, or the advent from each gospel. So what we're going to do is over the course of the next several weeks, we're going to look at what Mark has to say tonight about the gospel or the advent and, and what, he, what, what he has to say about Jesus coming into the world. We're going to look at what Matthew has to say next week, and Pastor Gary is going to preach that sermon. It'll be one of his last sermons here with us as he uh, steps away from his ministry here at Wilkesboro Baptist Church to plant a church in the Boomer area. And so he's going to preach to us Advent from the Gospel of Matthew. And we'll look at Advent from the Gospel of Luke. And then we'll finish up on Christmas week, December 26th, and that Wednesday before, with Advent uh, from the Gospel of John. So if you're familiar at all with the biblical Gospels, then it will strike you a little bit that we're going to start with the Gospel of Mark. Why are we going to start with the Gospel of Mark? And there are several reasons you could ask that question. One reason is, if you pay attention to the Gospel of Mark, there's no Advent, traditional Advent story in the Gospel of Mark. Mark doesn't start with Mary and Joseph. He doesn't start like Matthew does with the begats and, and go into Joseph's story and Mary's story. He doesn't start like Luke does where Luke 
uh, deals with G, uh, the angel Gabriel coming to Elizabeth first and then to Mary and, and the birth of those two important children. Uh, Luke gets into the personal nature of it. And of course, John goes all the way back and he goes back to the beginning, the beginning of the beginning when Jesus alone was there. And so we get that there's an advent there, but what about Mark? Mark starts, this is the gospel according of Jesus Christ and He's the Son of God, and then it moves right into John the Baptist. Why is that? Why does Mark start there? Why does he not go further back? And then there's another reason why you might be wondering why we're starting with Mark rather than Matthew. Matthew begins the New Testament. Why not Mark? Well, scholars have concluded over the years that they think that Mark is the earliest gospel that was written. Matthew, Mark, and Luke represent what we call the synoptic gospels. Uh, they're three gospels that obviously relied on some uh, source. Uh, some scholars would say that Matthew and Luke relied a little bit on Mark, and maybe Mark relied on a source that was earlier than that. That actually should encourage our faith as followers of Jesus because we can get Mark's gospel dated back to close to the 50s or so. Uh, most conserv many conservative scholars get it back to the 50s AD, so within 20 years of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And if there's a source that Mark was relying on, any kind of written source, Prior to that, then you've got source material that is obviously from eyewitness accounts. And Mark was not one of those eyewitnesses, by the way. He was a distant follower of Jesus. He might have been around, but he wasn't one that was one of the disciples. So scholars seem to think that what we have with Mark's account is an account from the apostle Peter. So as Peter walked and talked with Jesus and served as a disciple and witnessed all of the things that he did in Jesus' life and ministry, Mark followed him. And as we learned when we looked at the letter to 1 Peter, Mark was someone who Peter depended on and relied upon. And it's pretty evident that what Mark did is he sat down with Peter and he listened to the stories about Jesus and he wrote them down and put them in the gospel account that we have. And so why in the world did Peter not start with the beginning of Jesus in the world? I think there's a couple of reasons for that. Uh, that number one, it, it really wasn't tremendously important to Peter uh, that Jesus entered the world by way of incarnation. And I, I re, I'm not saying it didn't matter. It did matter. That's why Matthew and Luke include it. But for Peter, Peter's beginning point of the gospel of Jesus is kind of when he meets Jesus. He's writing it from the perspective of someone who met Jesus. And early on in Mark's gospel, chapter 1, you find Jesus meeting Peter and inviting Peter to be a follower. And so Peter starts, and by extension Mark starts, right there at the beginning point of Jesus' ministry. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't say anything about Advent. Listen, as you and I step into Advent season... We think about it, if we're not careful, as being one and the same with Christmas. Now, I understand that because Advent leads to Christmas. Advent is the coming of the Messiah into the world. That's what Advent means, the one who came. Speaking of the one who came, and that leads us to Christmas. But in our culture, when we think about Christmas, we so often think about the commercialization and the Santa Clauses, and the red colors, and the green colors, and all of the trappings that come along with the commercialized version of Christmas. In fact, you can watch movies, and you can sing, hear songs sung that are all about Christmas that have absolutely nothing to do with the original and, and, and important and primary reason that Christmas exists anyway, which is the Advent, Jesus coming into the world. 
So what Mark's gospel does, and I'll put it this way if you want to write it down or think on it later. In Mark's gospel, what we have is that the magic of Christmas, that is the contemporary sentimentalism around Christmas, is replaced by the miracle of Jesus' mission and ministry. In other words, instead of us looking at a gospel that would kind of draw us down into, oh, that was a sweet moment and that was a wonderful event, which we need to think about, and Matthew and Luke help us do that. But instead of Mark doing that, he moved straight from Jesus being the Messiah, Jesus being the Son of God as he introduces his gospel account right into his ministry. And so one of the things that we need to remember, and I think Mark's gospel helps us do this spectacularly, is that if we're not careful, we'll get lost in all of the events around Christmas that don't have anything to do with the ultimate purpose of Christmas. Mark helps us reset our focus as to why Jesus came in the first place. And we're going to look at three specific connections that I think we can make in Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 15 that help us as we reflect on this Advent season, but also thinking about why Jesus came and why it matters. If you will, read with me in Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. We've read 15 verses in the gospel of Mark. And if you paid any attention to how we read those, it felt a little bit like a staccato pattern. It's constant movement. And if you read the rest of the gospel of Mark, it reads exactly like that. Mark is interested in the movement of Jesus through his ministry and through his service. And ultimately, that leads us to his mission, which was to die on a cross and bring us salvation. It also reads like a recollection. It reads like a conversation a little bit. Mark is talking with Peter, and Peter's relaying, hey, this happened, and and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. And and as you continue to read through it, that's exactly the way Mark pictures for us the ministry, the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Where does he begin? It's interesting where he begins, and where I'd like us to begin. The first connection we can make is this. We need to observe... God's preparation for his coming kingdom. Where Mark starts is with Jesus, and you'll see that, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
He begins with that, Jesus, Yeshua, the Jewish name that means Jesus is Savior, uh, uh, Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, and, and he makes it very clear at the outset that he's talking about someone who is unique. He is the Son of God. So there's, an, there's a, a, a note here uh, that Mark includes, and he does this throughout his gospel. The demons acknowledge that Jesus is the Holy One of God. Uh, Jesus acknowledges that at various places in his own personal testimony and witness in the gospel of Mark. So Mark's making it very clear at the outset who he's talking about. He's talking about Jesus Christ, who he believes is the Messiah, the Son of God. But then he moves straight forward into a prophetic announcement that isn't about Jesus. Did you catch that? It's about John the Baptist. Behold, I send my messenger before you who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And then verse 4, John appeared. What, what Mark is doing here, he's quoting two Old Testament references, one from the book of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 40, and one from the book of Malachi in Malachi chapter 3. And, and so here's what it says. It tells us that God was planning His work of saving us long before we even imagined that we needed a Savior. God's preparation for bringing salvation to us took a long time. It took a long time, and it was the right time when Jesus came. And God sent someone who would prepare his way. I want you to think about this. Think about the importance of this. God didn't just send Jesus to come and tell us about himself and tell us about salvation and die on the cross. God sent someone ahead of Jesus to fulfill prophecy in one vein, but also to announce Jesus to the world. There's a theological reason too. You're going to find out in a minute that John was the one who baptized Jesus. So he had a tremendously important role in announcing Jesus' ministry and the beginning of Jesus' ministry. But I just want you to think about the preparation, the time that it took for God to plan the events surrounding the birth of John and the birth of Jesus and John stepping into the world and being the forerunner for Jesus and then Jesus stepping into the world to be our Savior. It's a beautiful testimony to God's preparing work. In fact, if you look at the Gospel of Mark in the New Testament, there are 400 years separating the, the last prophetic announcement in the Old Testament and the first prophetic announcement, which would have been John preaching in the wilderness in a technical sense, but in terms of a written sense, before the New Testament was put down, 400 years. And if you go back to Isaiah's prophecy, so we take Malachi, there's 400 years between Malachi and John, Malachi and Jesus, there's 700 years between, more than 700 years between Isaiah and John and Isaiah and Jesus. And all that time, God was working, God was moving, but God was planning and God was preparing in order for our salvation to take place. Some, sometimes we wonder, is God's timing right? I mean, really, if, if, if we're honest with ourselves, we're a little bit impatient with God's movement and God's interaction and God's work in our world. We're impatient with God's movement and God's interaction and God's work in our lives. We want God to save that person that we've been praying for. We want God to change that person we've been praying for. We want God to move in that life that we've been praying for. We want God to help us in the midst of the situation we're in. We want God to come through miraculously, savingly, in a wonderful way. And you know what? Sometimes He absolutely does. And then there are other times when His time does not seem at all to be our time. I just want to remind you of something. He's in control and it's okay. 
Because if it took 700 years for him to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah about Jesus and Isaiah about John, and if it took 400 years for him to fulfill the prophecy from Malachi about John, God knows exactly what he's doing, and he's absolutely in control. Observe God's preparation for our salvation. Let me say it this way. If God took that long to bring about the events that way and accomplished the events of our salvation throughout, as discussed throughout all four gospel accounts, if God did that, do you think God's going to mess up when he brings us to a place of salvation and repentance and confession and restoration? I'm going to tell you something. God doesn't make mistakes. He is completely in control. And one thing that the Advent teaches us, especially as Mark draws our attention to it through John and then through Jesus, one thing it teaches us, it teaches us, folks, of God's glorious preparation. Something else that we learn in the Advent, according to Mark, or as we begin Mark's, Mark's teaching here, is Peter, in his recollections, and Mark in his recordings, were intentionally interested in us knowing that Jesus is a part of a Trinitarian God. I want you to catch this in the prophecy there written in verse 2. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Who is the I who sends the messenger? That's the Lord himself. That's God. God will send a messenger. That's John the Baptist who will prepare the way for the Lord. Who's the Lord? That's Jesus himself. In the Old Testament, in Isaiah's prophecy, there's an allusion there to a Trinitarian formulation of God. And you move right into the baptism account, where in the baptism account, Jesus himself, who's described as the Son of God, who claims in the Gospel of Mark to be God himself when he takes on the declaration of being the Son of Man. And then you have God the Father saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then you have God the Holy Spirit descending as a dove. At the very outset of the Gospel of Mark, it is a Trinitarian formulation for a God who wants to save us and redeem us. And I'm going to tell you something, folks, that John preached that message in the wilderness and he preached a message of repentance and he invited people to turn from their sins and be baptized. That message is the same message message Jesus preached, and that ultimately is a message about a God who in a Trinitarian formulation, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, wants to forgive you and save you and redeem you. And it is a beautiful picture of God's preparation work that brings us to salvation. That's one connection I want you to see. There's another connection I want you to see in the, in the gospel according to Mark. We experience the importance of the ministry and mission of Jesus. We experience the importance of it. I want you to catch this. Jesus is going to be the one who baptizes you with the Holy Spirit. It's important that we're baptized. And Jesus was baptized, by the way. We're a Baptist church for a reason. Last Sunday, we baptized people uh, into our, in our baptistry. And it was a public affirmation of their private faith or trust in Jesus Christ. They're telling everybody that they put their faith in Jesus Christ. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, very simply, is us being saved. It's the fact that when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, here's what God does. God, in a glorious and miraculous and quite mysterious fashion, puts His Holy Spirit inside of us. And if you're here as a follower of Jesus Christ, you've trusted Jesus to be your Savior, the Holy Spirit's with you. He's dwelling with you. Wherever you are, Jesus baptized you in the Holy Spirit. And the public affirmation of physical baptism, immersion baptism, is a testimony of what we believe has happened privately. And so Jesus came and John said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then Jesus looked at John and said, I need you to baptize me. 
Not because Jesus had any sins. And by the way, that's an interesting thing that Mark does not include here. John baptized for the repentance of sins or for the conf- to, to people who confessed their sins. But when Jesus went to John to be baptized, Jesus made no confession because Jesus had no sins. And you get that. Jesus is being baptized as a, as a beginning point for his ministry, as a starting point for the ministry that he's going to do, not in, by way of confessing sins, because his ministry gives us the privilege to be forgiven and saved. That he has no sin means that uh, 15 chapters later, when Jesus was going to hang on a cross for our sins, he could hang on a cross and pay and suffer for our unrighteousness. You need to witness the ministry and mission of Jesus. Then Jesus was baptized, and then immediately the text tells us the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. So again, a Trinitarian picture there. Jesus is baptized, and the Spirit drove him, pushed him, moved him into the wilderness. The idea is Jesus didn't go looking for a fight. You get that? He he isn't trying to, to take on enemies. The Spirit led him there. He was there in God's will. He wasn't trying to do anything out of the way. The ministry and mission of Jesus is something that we need to grab a hold of. Because as you read through the Gospel of Mark, and maybe if you have some extra time this week, you could read through a few chapters or read through all the chapters of Mark. What you find is that constantly Jesus is caring for the sick by healing them. Constantly Jesus is talking to the demon-possessed and casting those demons out. Constantly Jesus is preaching the good news of the kingdom. We'll finish up our text in verse 15. When Jesus preached the good news of the kingdom, he's constantly teaching. He's constantly ministering. He's on a mission. And what we need to see about Advent, folks, is that the Jesus who we worship and we celebrate as being born and laid in a manger did not stay a baby in a manger. He grew up to be a man who would walk dirty streets and touch sick people and minister to those who were hurting and minister to those who were broken. And the beauty of that, folks, is that when we see Jesus serving and living and ministering and caring and showing compassion, it focuses our attention not on his starting point in human history, which is his arrival as a baby, but the penultimate point of his ministry, which happened when he hung on a cross. Think about this for a moment. Why do we like Santa Claus so much? He's a jolly old guy, right? He smiles a lot and he brings toys to children. And, and, and we get this image of the magic of Christmas and this, this picture that, that, that Santa is someone everybody can approach. There's nothing wrong with Santa Claus. There's nothing wrong with Santa Claus pictured as a caricature for generosity and kindness and, and, and loving everybody in the world. But we need to grasp something that's tremendously important. Jesus is not Santa Claus in a manger. Jesus is not a caricature of some kind of person that, 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 that we want to remake in our own image or remake in a way that we think is approachable as we're comfortable with. No, Jesus is God himself in human flesh. Listen, the baby we celebrate as a little boy or the baby we celebrate in a manger, and the boy who lived a perfect life on earth and, and who never failed and never sinned, grew up to be a preacher who would proclaim that there's only one way to God, and it is through himself. And he grew up to be a, a Christ and a Messiah who died on a cross. Listen, one of the things we need to remember at Christmas is that we're not celebrating the sentimental. 
The sentimental, yeah, it, it should bring a tear to our eye. There are times it should, it should move us. There are moments where we should think about it. But Jesus didn't stay in a manger. Jesus didn't stay a little boy. He wasn't someone forever worshipped by wise men as a child. He grew up to be a savior. And one of the things that Mark does is he reminds us that the Gospels are not about the starting point. That's important. It's important theologically. It's important personally. And we're going to talk about that over the next few weeks. But it is important in those re- for those reasons because of how it finishes. Because Jesus would go to a cross and hang on a cross and be our Savior. Let me give you a third connection that I think is tremendously important from this gospel. We have a chance to receive the invitation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I love that when you find Jesus beginning his ministry, he's preaching. Get this. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee... His first act as a minister, his first act in his ministry, his first formal, evident, it wasn't inviting a disciple to follow him, it wasn't healing a sick person, it wasn't raising a dead person, it wasn't casting out a demon, it wasn't arguing with religious leaders. His first act, according to Mark, is this. Jesus was proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe and the gospel. Jesus' first words in a ministry setting were repent and believe the gospel. A couple of things that tells us that tells us, first of all, that Jesus and John were saying the exact same thing. John was telling uh, his audience that they needed to repent and turn from their sin. Jesus was telling his audience that they needed to repent and turn from their sin. Several other things it tells us. Did you catch where John was when he was preparing the way of the Lord? He wasn't in the highways, he wasn't in the streets, he wasn't in Jerusalem. He was where? In the wilderness. Did you catch where Jesus went when he went to be tempted by Satan? He went to, not the highways, not Jerusalem. He went to the wilderness. The wilderness is imagery for the people of Israel who for 40 years they wandered in the wilderness. They disobeyed God. Their lack of faith, their lack of trust in God led them to wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. I want to tell you something. When Jesus comes to preach the gospel, he comes to preach the gospel to people where they are, not where we would like those people to be. John went to the wilderness where the people were. Jesus went through the wilderness to be tempted. Jesus preaches a gospel that meets us where we are. Some of us get confused. We think that God wants us to clean ourselves up before we come to him. God wants us to make ourselves right. God wants us to leave stuff behind. Uh, No, God is the one that cleans you up. God invites you to come to him as you are. The gospel is a message that comes to us in our wilderness, in a place of separation, in a place of distinction, in a place where we're not right before God. The gospel comes to us when we need it the most. And Jesus preached that gospel and he invites us to receive him as Lord and Savior. Let me make a confession to you, okay? I get burdened uh, quite often when I preach because I want people to come to know Jesus. And this past Sunday at our 11 o'clock worship service, we baptized several folks and they had a bunch of friends and family and, and individuals that were here watching those baptism services. And I know without a doubt that there were people in our worship service Sunday that did not know Jesus, had not yet trusted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Some of those folks I've been praying for, some of those folks I haven't, some I, don't, I know their name, some I don't know their name. And let me tell you, I wanted them to come to know Jesus. 
part of me wanted to walk down in front of a few of them and just kind of, you know, you, hey, this message is for you, this moment, this invitation. You need to trust Jesus. And in personal conversations, folks, I've done that over the years. I've looked people straight in the eye and said, hey, now's the time for you to trust Jesus. Jesus is inviting you to be saved today. You know what amazes me? It amazes me that someone can hear the gospel so clearly. Listen to the same sermons you're listening to. Hear the same good news that you've heard. And walk out not having trusted Jesus to be their Savior. It breaks my heart. It's something that shakes me. I'm going to use an illustration in a moment that, that kind of drives at that imagery. But you know what? I got to thinking about it. I got to praying about it. Why is that? And what do we do about that? Well, it, it gets at the very message, folks, that Jesus was preaching, that John was preaching. They started out with this word that said, repent. Repent. That means a change of mind. That means turning away from something. You know what keeps so many people from accepting the clear, very simple message of the gospel that Jesus came to be our Savior, and if we'll trust in Him alone, He'll forgive us and cleanse us and bring us into eternal life. You know what keeps so many people from following Jesus? They won't repent. They won't let go of their pride. Or they won't let go of their good works. Or they won't let go of their money. Or they won't let go. You put, you put whatever in the place. And do you know who the only person is that can help them let go of that stuff? It's the power of the Holy Spirit bringing conviction and bringing them to a place of repentance. And God encouraged me with that this week. As much as I want you in the room, you watching at home, those that join us on Sundays, as much as I want and beg and pray and plead for you to trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior... It starts with you being willing to let go of your sins and repent. Here's why that really matters, though, folks. It matters because the only thing that will give us eternal life is the gospel of Jesus Christ. There was a preacher one day who began his sermon like this. Matches, matches, matches. This was dated. This was many, many years ago. The reason he began the sermon like this is because in his study, he was preparing and he was writing a sermon and he was, he was uh, writing about uh, inviting people to trust in Jesus. And in that moment of him, his sermon preparation, Satan kind of whispered in his ear and said something like this, your efforts are so worthless. You've worked so hard to, to preach these sermons. You work tirelessly to preach these sermons, and nobody comes to faith. And at that moment, as he was kind of interacting with the enemy and, and thinking about his sermon preparation, a gentleman outside the window was, had a pile of matches, and he was trying to sell those matches like a newspaper person on the street would try to be selling a newspaper. And he was yelling at the top of his lungs, matches, matches, matches. The reason he was yelling is because he wanted to sell matches. And the Spirit of the Lord spoke to that preacher in that moment and said this, you haven't worked as hard to bring souls to salvation as that guy has worked to sell matches on the street. I'll tell you something, folks. It is our obligation to take the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who need to hear it. It's God's job to bring them to repentance. It's God's job to bring them to salvation. I can't change a heart, you can't change a heart. But if we don't share the gospel and we don't share it with passion and with burden, 
then we've not done our job. Let me pause for just a second and encourage a lot of you folks in the room. Some of you have some of those folks in your life. They're family members. They're in-laws. They're neighbors. They're children. They're grandparents. They're co-workers. That you know if they were to die today, they would not enter into heaven. Folks, the only answer is what Jesus preached in Mark 1.15. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the good news. The only answer is what John preached. It's repentance and turning to Jesus alone. Let me tell you something. It is our job to take that message to those who don't yet know Christ. Will you take the message of the gospel to those this week? Will you pray for an opportunity to tell that person about Jesus Christ? Say, hey, Jesus came. Yeah, he came as a baby, but he came to be your Savior. Would you receive him as Lord and Savior? Let him know where you stand. I'm not asking you to get in a fight. I'm not asking you to get in an argument or a debate. Just invite them to trust in Jesus. And then trust that God's time is best. I can't explain to you why it is that God saves when he does. But I know this, just before I walked in to give this sermon tonight, I talked with a 10-year-old who put his faith and trust in Jesus. I'm going to tell you something. It was the perfect time for him, and the perfect time for his family. It was a moment that God orchestrated in that event to bring that young man to faith in Jesus Christ. I can't tell you what and when and why God works, but I can tell you this. He works when we share the good news of Jesus with those who desperately need to hear it. Maybe you're here today and you need the gospel. You haven't put your faith and trust in Jesus alone. Let me beg you. Jesus came to be your Savior. He died on a cruel cross so that you could be forgiven and you could have eternal life. Would you put your trust in Him? If you're not sure how, I'd be honored to talk with you after the worship service. Stay behind. I'll stay behind. We'll talk about putting your faith and trust in Jesus alone. Christian, as we think through this sermon series, the the advent from each gospel account, I want you to think about it from the perspective of Mark. Mark wanted us, Mark wanted his readers, his hearers to know that the point of Jesus coming was Jesus saving. You and I have that gospel. You and I have received that gospel. Your brother-in-law and your sister-in-law, your brother and your sister, your family member, your friend, your neighbor, your co-worker, they haven't. Will you take some extra time over this season to have a coffee with them? Will you take some extra time to get on the phone and tell them, hey, listen, I love you and I want you to know Jesus? Will you take a little extra time to share the good news of Jesus Christ that could mean the difference between their eternal life and their eternal death? Stand with me, if you will. Father, we come to you in this moment, this time of invitation. We thank you, Lord, for the way you've worked in our lives, the way you've worked in the lives of others to bring us and bring them to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, these are the days where we get a chance to proclaim the good news. These are the days where we get to witness individuals coming to faith in Jesus and you raise missionaries and pastors and preachers and and servants of the church to share the good news of Jesus with our neighbors and the nations. These are those days and we're excited to be a part of them. But Lord, we pray that you would send us out with that message. I pray, Lord, for any in the room, any watching at home that have not yet put their faith and trust in you, I pray that today would be the day. This moment would be the moment they confess their sins, turn from their unrighteousness, and believe in the Lord Jesus alone to be their Savior. I pray, Heavenly Father, that that we as your followers would not just be your followers in our own heart and life, but be your followers in the way we live our lives by speaking the good news of Jesus 
to those who desperately need salvation. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being on the move. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your ministry and your mission in the Gospel of Mark. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming to be our Savior and our forgiver. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found. 